Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have four, yes, four uh, special guests here for you today who will be sharing on um, this thing called the um, Spalding Symposium on Indian Religions. Well, since it's related to Indian religions, clearly they're in the right space uh, on this podcast. Um, My guests today are Dr. Karen Bryan-Kopp. She's been on the podcast before to talk about her work, and she will be returning next month to talk about more of her work. Um, She's a lecturer in South Asian Religions and Ethics at University of Roehampton, London. I've got Dr. Brian Black. He's also been on the podcast to talk about his fascinating work. Uh, He's senior lecturer in religious studies at Lancaster University. I also have... um, Avni Chag, who is manager of the Two Centuries of Indian Print uh, Project at the British Library, as well as uh, Kush Tipala, PhD student at Heidelberg University. Um, welcome, one and all, to the podcast. Hello. So, listen, I'm, I'm kind of slow, as you've gathered, right? So, the, this Spalding Symposium on Indian Religions, um, uh, you know, what is this? You know, sort of how long has this been around? Well, it, it's, it's actually quite a fascinating story. The, the first Spalding Symposium um, happened in 1975. So um, we've been going quite a while now. And it was started by an academic that I'm sure some of the listeners to this podcast will have heard of. His name was Carl Werner. And he himself had a very interesting background. He was originally from... Um, what's now the Czech Republic, and he had to um, escape during the Soviet invasion in 1968 and emigrate to the UK. He had a position, he had an endowed chair um, in in Indian religions and philosophies at Durham University in their School of Oriental Studies at Durham. I couldn't find um, any um, records of where the first symposium, where the first Spalding Symposium took place, but I, I'm pretty sure it actually happened in Durham, even though they no longer have um, this School of Oriental Studies. Um, Carl Werner kept the, the symposium going for 10 years before he handed it over to other conveners. But I think the other thing that's really interesting to know is where the name Spalding comes from. And it was a trust set up by H.N. Spalding and his wife. And um, apparently they set up the trust in two stages. One, the first stage in 1923 and then again in 1928. But through this trust, they have helped Um, support the study of Indian religion and philosophy, as well as um, other Asian religions and philosophies in a number of institutions across the UK. Um, So they were very generous to Oxford University over the years. 
Um, they were very generous to Durham, even though Durham doesn't do Oriental studies anymore. Um, but that, so, I mean, I'm not exactly sure why they chose this name besides the fact that they were getting money from the Durham, I mean, from the, um, from the Spalding Trust. But it is interesting to know that, in, that Carl Warner, um, his position was the Spalding Chair of Indian Philosophy. Um, and religion when he set up the first symposium. I'm not sure if anybody else wants to add anything to that, to that bit of background. Just a, a quick, uh, a quick guess. You know, Spalding Symposium. I bet it's all for the sake of the alliteration. That's what it is. <laughs> um, I can't help myself when I write articles. Actually, it's it's I've got a bit of OCD with that. It's like the safeguard of sovereignty or avian artistry. I just it's just anyhow. Um, Brian, before we, we move on to um, some other voices, tell us a bit about what you do for the symposium. What's your role? <laughs> well, I've been involved now for a number of years. <clears throat> I was involved, um, I mean, I'm the so-called secretary. Um, um, I was involved when, um, when Naomi Appleton was the, the convener. But I mean, I have to say that, um, that, you know, I think that this is a real team effort. You know, we... When we when we think about um, you know when we're planning the next symposium and we're you know doing a call for papers and then we're collecting the papers you know there, there's a lot of communication amongst us and you know every decision is a group decision every decision about the planning of the future is a, a group decision so all all I can say is I'm, I'm part of a great team. All right, so maybe we can hear about what some of the rest of the team does. Uh, Karen, do you want to chime in? Well, I am uh, recently, um, I have recently joined the team as a co-chair with Dr. Avni Chug, um, and we were fortunate to take over from Dr. Naomi Appleton, who is senior lecturer in Buddhist studies at the University of Edinburgh, and she had been uh, chairing for a number of years, um, along, you know, working alongside Brian and did a wonderful job, really, I think, at increasing visibility and um, awareness of the Spalding Symposium and also initiating, um, taking it on tour, really, around the UK so that it started to move from campus to campus and really be presented by a different um, academic community each year. Uh, but Avni and I took over in, I think, 2020, um, just in time for the pandemic. <laughs> so it's been an interesting process of um, stepping into some very big shoes um, in terms of taking over fr from Naomi and also uh, navigating this quite unusual period of everything moving online for the last couple of years. Um, um, Dr. Chag, Avni. Why don't you tell us a bit about your role in the conference? Um, um, I guess my role uh, mirrors uh, Karen's in most ways um, in that we both uh, co-convene the conference and really because we've worked together for so many years on um, different projects, um, we just roll off each other in terms of uh, what needs to get done. Um, at least for the last uh, two to three symposium, symposiums, everything's been online. Um, so it hasn't been as uh, grueling as uh, um, putting something together in person, um, but we're hoping to actually get back in person the next year. But in terms of roles and responsibilities, um, it's really just 
putting together calls for papers um, and then bringing bringing together and choosing um, pretty pretty difficult decisions in choosing uh, papers um, for the for, for the symposium and then bringing that all together really and all the admin that that entails. Um, but really, I feel like the team works so well together in terms of um, picking up something that someone hasn't managed to get done. Um, I've just recently uh, had a baby, and Karen's literally been driving the driving the um, driving the symposium forward. So love to hear more a bit about the process and in particular the transition to online but before we do that let's hear from the fourth member of this uh this a team yes so uh, i joined on quite late actually after karen and Avni. um we knew each other at soas uh, so they were both doing their phds while i was doing my undergrad um so uh i think when everything started to go online because i was doing some stuff with that whole process with my university anyway when everything started to completely fall apart so um, yeah, we just we're just basically just there to help get everything uh, running on Zoom quite nicely. And I think we the first time we had a couple of technical hitches, but I think we pulled it off pretty well. Uh, but we've got the process quite locked down now. I think with online conferences, managing loads of people, all that kind of stuff. Excellent. How many years now has it been on? Has it been online? I think we did the last two, was it or three? And do you think that the online component is here to stay? Uh, do you think it'll be hybrid in future? Do you think you'll return to in-person? Do you want to say a bit about that, one of you? I think we're still figuring out what the right balance is for the future. We've we've really benefited um, in terms of having the online format um, to, in terms of being able to open up uh, to new audiences and to to be able to schedule scholars who might ordinarily not have been able to um, find the time or money to travel to the UK. So that's been really beneficial. And I think we have decided we'd like to keep some element um, of that wider accessibility present in our future formats um, in terms of having some kind of hybrid component. But I think given that this is our third online conference, we are quite looking forward to getting back to being on campus somewhere in spring, being together with people and really, um, I think, enjoying one of the distinct aspects of the Spalding, which is that it does have a very loyal and long-standing community of attendees. It's not the biggest conference, but it is, I think, um, an opportunity for people to really uh, explore the research papers in depth and to discuss them in depth um, and that in part comes from the the whole atmosphere being quite cozy and friendly so I think there will be some aspect going forwards and the others can <laughs> chime in here uh, but we're also very much looking forward to being back to an in-person conference soon I bet you that'll happen next year uh, fingers crossed it feels like uh we're, we're undergoing the COVID major off-ramp as we speak, but we'll see how that, we'll see how that plays out. Um, nothing can replace an immersive experience at a conference um, when, you know, you're, you're, you're focused um, in, you're focused uh, on the papers and intellectual engagement and you're away from your usual um, duties and setting. And it, it's quite fruitful for generating conversation and thought. Um, and yet at the same time, uh, the accessibility of online uh, participation is, is incredible. So it's sort of a bit of a trade-off. Um, 
So what you said in passing is something that I think is very inviting, and that's that it's a very collegial environment. It's, a, it's an academic conference, but it sounds like a very community-oriented conference. Would you say that primarily the attendees are UK-based, or is it uh, broader than that? What would you say about the, the sorts of participants? I mean, I think mm -hmm. over the years, um, it, it used to be um, overwhelmingly UK-based. You know, if you look back at some of the other, I mean, some of the, the past lists of presentations, you'll find that almost every academic, almost every paper was from an academic base in the UK. Um, I think that that's changed in recent years that, um, and, and that's been, I think, a nice change. It, it's sort of, um, it, it's become a more international conference in the sense that the, the list of speakers, usually, usually we have a few from North America, Europe, um, often people from South Asia, and you know that's a great um, that's a great mix. But still, I think most of the attendees in the audience tend to be from the UK. Um, you know, uh, I think our last one that that we had in person was the was the one in Lancaster, and we had about fifty people there um, attending the conference over the three day period. And I mean, again, back to something that Karen was saying, one, one of the things that's, I think, so nice about this conference and why it has such a loyal following is because of this sort of intimate environment. There's no parallel sessions. You know, there's just one paper at a time. And Karen and Avni and Kush can talk a little bit more about the sort of unique, um, you know, um, um, length of the papers that that I think is really important but it just means that when the you know when the conference takes place in person everybody meets everybody everybody sees everybody's paper and it, it generates a lot of discussion both both in the room and afterwards that's a great point um, about there being no um, simultaneous sessions so that everybody uh, hears everything and it's a shared experience all around. Uh, do one of you want to continue along the lines of what the structure is like, what the, what the, what the panels are like, how long is the conference, uh, how long are the papers type thing? So it's a, it's a very traditional format, um, which we've followed even though we're now online, uh, but it starts Friday lunchtime. Um, everyone comes together. There is, there's a, usually two keynotes, one at the beginning and one at the end of the conference. Um, and there's also um, quite often a, a, a discussion and there's an interspersing of um, panels and papers from established scholars, as well as the creation of space for PhD um, students who are at an advanced stage in their research and early career scholars. So there's quite a generous allocation, both for the established scholars who get 40 minutes to present plus 20 minutes discussion, so they get a full hour, um, and graduates uh, and early career scholars get 20 minutes for their paper plus 10 minutes discussion. Uh, so we feel that that's one of the really distinct qualities of the symposium which we are trying to preserve even though we are somewhat bucking the trend so I've noticed in the past couple of years at the really large-scale events like the American Academy of Religion um, many of the panel presentations are increasing numbers of speakers and, and decreasing the amount of time that's allocated 
um, to perhaps even 10 minutes in some cases. So you get a flavor of a research paper, but not really the details or the depth. Um, and we're really holding fast to that idea that people can concentrate uh, for 40 minutes and that it is worth paying attention and really using this time together to um, unpack a paper, to appreciate it. And I think for the scholars, you know, the consistent feedback, including for graduate students, is that the feedback from the audience is really helpful in developing a piece of work, um, in taking a, a work in progress forward. Uh, and that feedback, the quality of the comments tends to be very robust and expert. Um, so it's usually a really relaxed event over three days on a campus somewhere in the UK in the last few years. It's been touring around. Um, the others can help me out here. Let's see, Cardiff, Edinburgh, Lancaster, Durham, Oxford. Um, we had our own ideas for where to hold the conference in the last couple of years, um, but obviously we've been online, but it's it's usually all about the spring blossoms and the unexpected April sunshine and, and that very convivial atmosphere. And, and the dinner is really important as well. Lots of time spent lingering in, in discussions, lots of, you know, professional relationships, friendships formed um, at those evening events. So it, it's quite a special atmosphere, I would say. Where do I sign up? That sounds that sounds sounds delightful. You know, so many of the experiences, in my view, that we cherish in this day and age, whether personal or professional experiences, um, um, we do so because um, we're able to take the time and take the space and slow down and counteract this acceleration that is our civilization. And Brian's dog is emphatically agreeing with everything I'm saying. <laughs> um, it sounds like a, a phenomenal experience, actually, the ability to connect with colleagues in a leisurely space um, and enjoy good food. You said something about the blossoms. Is it is it a particular weekend, a particular time of year? Like, what's the mandate for when the conference takes place, the symposium? Well, we're very much the new kids on the block, Avni and I and, and Kush, but it, it's traditionally taken place in late April. So the third weekend of April, um, it's time to come at the end of the um, Easter or spring break uh, so that people are present, but not yet back at work. So it is this moment, this reflective pause before summer term starts. So from what you said in passing, um, um, there are grad students who participate. This is something that you'd welcome for grad students who might be listening. Could you say a little bit more about that? Um, uh, grad, grad papers, I believe, is something um, Naomi introduced uh, just before Karen and I took over. Um, but I remember actually um, having Spalding Symposium as one of my first experiences of a conference. Um, and it was in Oxford and it was very intimidating, um, at least to get up there and start presenting on my um, PhD research, but it was probably one of the fondest times and um, of my PhD career. Um, and I, I came away from that experience um, wanting to do more and wanting to connect and um, even get involved. Um, so the papers, are, papers for graduate students are structured um, with 20 minutes and then 10 minutes for discussion. Um, it may seem short and it may seem like the norm, but you tend to go away and find someone at lunchtime that you get to sit with and draw out your ideas with. And I've had 
I mean, from my from my, my experiences at the Sporting Symposium as a student, um, I came away with so much more um, and learned so much more too. So um, I hope um, that this is something that we'll continue with um, this year as well. I think we had more graduate submissions than we actually had um, main papers and we were blown away by just how amazing their research is. Um, so really it's, it's just really great, a really great space to um, allow people to start forming their ideas and um, start presenting their research, which really is um, one of the kind. That sounds like a collegial supportive atmosphere, which is always welcome. It reminds me of, um, you know, this balding has sort of been in my, my peripheral vision for a number of years, but uh, more, um, um, more directly, I typically attend and I'm aware of the AAR and Madison. And there's such different feels, right? Because of the size and because of the, the feeling of connection and collegiality. So, you know, when one goes to Madison, there really is a much deeper sense of sort of um, kutumba, you know, and it sounds like a similar experience, if not more so at the Spalding Symposium. Um, how many, give us a sense of how many papers there are and or how many submissions you receive type thing. Well, typically, um, the structure that we've inherited would run about 16 papers over the course of the weekend. We have slightly extended that uh, this year. So I think we have 18, including all the graduate papers. And we expanded those graduate panels a little, simply because we have that flexibility with the online format. Because, as Avni said, the, the quality of the papers was so high in terms of the graduate submissions this year. Uh, although we expect that in future years, we would have to um, just slightly circumscribe that again as we fit back into the traditional format. Um, but I think we have somewhat um, limited sense of, of the, the number of submissions, but, but certainly very robust and, and healthy. And as Avni mentioned, it makes the selection process very difficult um, in terms of going through those papers and putting the whole program together. Tell us about this year's conference. Uh, what's the lineup like? Is there a theme? So the theme this year is uh, consciousness, death and immortality, quite wide ranging in terms of the keywords. And we're delighted to have two keynotes uh, this year. The first will be opening on the Friday with Professor Arvind Palsing Mandayer from the University of Michigan. And that will be quite a philosophical paper focusing on death, immortality, and time consciousness in Sikh philosophy. And our closing keynote will be um, from Dr. Naomi Appleton, from the University of Edinburgh, formerly the, the convener, of the chair of the symposium. And she will be giving a more literary um, paper, which is titled Sacrifice and Giving on the Narrative Path to Buddhahood. So we feel that that's a, a, a really um, strong kind of bookending of, of the conference, opening with Sikhi, closing with um, Buddhism. But in between, we have many papers um, from different time periods and traditions of Hinduism. And we have some papers uh, from the Jain and uh, Islamic traditions as well. But um, the, the, the panels are grouped together thematically um, so that, for example, we have panels that may be more philosophical 
or focused on philosophy of religion, um, might be looking at consciousness more in depth. I mean, I won't read through the whole program because it's online. Um, we have panels that are more oriented to the Vedic period, the Vedic literature. On the Sunday, we have a quite literary panel looking at metaphors um, across a range of early texts and traditions. Um, so it's 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 really a, a, a thematic concern with those intertwined questions of what is consciousness? Does it endure after death? Um, is consciousness immortal? And what do the religious and philosophical texts tell us about the, the answers, the approaches to these uh, perennial questions about the human condition? Fascinating. So for those of you interested, the URL is actually spaldingsymposium.org, which is uh, posted in the podcast notes as well. So one of the fascinating parallels between um, the symposium and the, the podcast is that the podcast was originally called uh, New Books in um, Hindu Studies, which I inherited uh, in 2018, I believe. Um, and uh, this year, um, late last year or early this year, we I decided to rebrand it as New Books in New Religions. And it sounds like for the very same reason, reasons why um, your conference is named uh, the Spalding Symposium on Indian Religions, because, you know, you've got a keynote speaker on Buddhism, um, uh, on, on, on Sikhism, you've got Jainism content, you've got Hinduism content, certainly. Um, and it, it's sort of the gamut of, of religiosity pertaining to the Indic world. Um, can someone say a little bit about that? And also um, a sort of a related idea about the, the, the diversity of the, of the contributions is um, there seems to be at first glance a variety of methodologies at play. And so what can we say about uh, the diversities in those regards at the conference? I mean, I think one thing that we've really tried to do over the last several years, um, I'm not saying that former conveners weren't doing this, but certainly I know that this has been a real um, a real emphasis, both with when Naomi was convening and now with with Karen and Avni as well, is to try to continue to diversify the papers. You know, there's a tendency, I think we see within um, how Indian religions are studied institutionally, you know, there's more, you know, Hinduism is gonna be more represented. Certainly in the history in this country, you know, Indology tended to be more sort of dominated by textual work, et cetera. And I think if you go back and look at the early conferences in the Spalding Symposium, you'd probably see that trend as well. But over the last several years, you know, we've really gone out of our way to try to um, make this conference known to a wider variety of researchers who study religion in South Asia, both in terms of discipline. So, you know, whether they're anthropologists, art historians, um, sociologists, um, you know, a number of different fields, as well as, you know, the different religions that, that they study. Um, and um, so, yeah, hopefully we can, we can keep that part going. Maybe Avni or, or Karen want to chime in. Well, I think for reviewing this year's um, wonderful program, we have actually um, slightly reverted to more textual studies. And I think it's in part because of the theme, there is a, a slightly more philosophical orientation this year. Um, but Brian is absolutely right that it's one of our key goals to diversify our 
programs in many different ways, not least of which um, the disciplinary approaches. Uh, I mean, our hope would be to increase the range of Indian religions that are also represented. So we would love to have more submissions from scholars in Sikh studies, um, in Jain studies, um, in South Asian Islam, for example. Um, I think we would also love to see a greater diversity of uh, disciplinary approaches, including those that examine contemporary material from a more sociological or um, political or anthropological perspective. So I think that's all there in formation and we'd like to really help crystallize that process even more clearly for the future. I think that's useful for listeners to know because many of our listeners are specialists of various sorts or, or um, grad students, um, scholars of various stripes, and um, they may not even know that they could submit to this to this forum, but I suppose now they do, which is great. <laughs> Quick question on um, so after so is there anything done with papers post presentation? Is there any sort of um, 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 proceedings, publication, or, or, or publication initiative related to the conference? Well, about 15 years ago, the um, organizers did uh, set up a journal, the uh, journal published by Equinox, which is Religions of South Asia. And that was initially focused on public publishing papers from the conference, um, but it has since developed into having a more autonomous identity and it now publishes from uh, all kinds of contrib contrib contributors all year round. Um, but there is still a, um, a kind of historical tie there between the journal and we are actually um, you know, offering our uh, respondents the opportunity to publish this year in Religions of South Asia, but that's not the only journal. Um, and I think that's um, something that Avni and I were very pleased to do last year was to be able to open up possibilities for publishing into some other avenues, um, uh, including the uh, Oxford Journal of Hindu Studies and uh, a book series that um, Brian is editing. I don't know if you both perhaps like to say a little bit more about those pathways? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think one of the nice things about the relationship with, with Rosa, the Religion of South Asian Journal, is that they're always really welcoming of, um, you know, paper proposals that have come from the conference. I mean, obviously, they don't guarantee publication that goes through peer review, etc. But there is sort of a historical relationship between the two. Um, but then, um, 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 you know, one of the things that, that I've been promoted rec promoting recently is um, a book series with Routledge that I co-edit with um, Professor Chakravarti Ram Prasad and Laurie Patton. And again, a theme that connects um, your podcast, um, the symposium, the Spalding Symposium and the book series is they're all focused on South Asian religions, not just one particular religion. And, and I know that a number of our contributors to our book series have, have really found that as sort of welcome home for their work because it, it welcomes that sort of comparative perspective. Um, but um, another thing to mention, I think Kush, Kush wants to bring up another way in which um, the presentations that Spalding have a life after the, the symposium. 
Yeah, so one of the really cool things about being online is that we actually managed to record some of our presentations. So we've tried to get as many of them up onto YouTube as possible. Uh, so we're the Spaldium Symposium on Indian Religions on YouTube, if you just take a look. And we're just putting up just the, the full papers. Um, we're leaving the discussion out because a lot of that sometimes it can get a little bit confusing if you skip to it. But actually, it's really nice having the papers again because you can listen back and then uh, realize like what questions you might have been missing or any small parts that you might want to go back over again. So it's always really good for that. That's great. I'll actually include the, the YouTube link in the podcast notes as well, alongside the official um, URL for, for the symposium. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the future of this endeavor? You know, what's the vision? You know, what's the hope? Where, where do we feel this is going? We'd like to take forward some of the positives from this period of, of being online because of the uh, COVID pandemic. And one of the positives for us has been, as I mentioned, that capacity to feature more international scholars um, and to really open up the, the work and the presentations to greater audiences globally. So um, we need to figure out a way to, when we go back on campus, to keep the kind of essence, the, the core identity of the Spalding, um, but also to be able to attract more scholars from overseas and um, to be able to build in some kind of hybrid format that will um, enable us to keep those channels of dialogue open, particularly with scholars in Asia, uh, especially South Asia, but also North America, which we have really enjoyed in the last couple of years. Um, and as we said, I think it's really about um, just increasing the visibility, letting people know that we're open to receiving papers, not just on historical material, which we all specialize in really, but um, not just text, which we also all specialize in, not just Sanskrit, but we're really open to um, all kinds of uh, linguistic traditions. And as I mentioned, more modern and contemporary approaches uh, and a wider range of religious traditions. Fascinating. I actually, um, I sort of compartmentalize like, between sort of podcast hosting and scholarship and teaching and this and that. But I actually will be presenting at Spalding this year online um, 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 from across the pond in, as I call it, the holy city of Toronto. But I am glad that at least for this year, the, the um, online participation is uh, available. It, it'll be my first um, opportunity to present at Spalding and I look forward to it. But having heard you describe the, the experience um, in person, um, I, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to coming in person at some point, even as an audience member, that would be fun. Uh, speaking of which, um, uh, who can come, who can attend? How does that work? How do folks come and attend if, they like, if they'd like? Well, I mean, the registration's really open to, to anybody. I mean, there, there are a few kind of long-term loyal participants, not necessarily presenters, but people who come to the conference who, who aren't academics, but who somewhere along the line got interested in, in, um, in Indian religions and decided that they liked this conference. Um, you know, when we have it in person, um, you know, it's just a matter of, of paying the, the fee to come to the conference and then, you know, getting themselves to where the conference is, etc. Um, as I said, I think that, um, you know, it is a nice size when it's in person, you know, it's about 
maybe between about 40 or 60 people, depending on the year. And, um, you know, you should definitely come, Raj, when we get back in person, because um, I know that especially a lot of academics that are based in North America who are used to going to the AAR and Spalding really sort of enjoy the, the intimate atmosphere um, that Spalding provides that, um, that I, I think is a bit unique when you're coming from the, the North American conference scene. I would love to. And Please can I just continue. encourage people to um, to join this year because it is free. There are no registration yeah. charges, and this makes it exactly. really inclusive and accessible to everyone, especially um, early career scholars uh, who may not have access to the same funds as more established scholars. And of course, we do want to acknowledge all of, all of this is possible due to the generous annual funding of the Spalding trust um, who have continued to support us in the last couple of years even though we've been online and we've been able to um, use some of their funding to launch a new website um, in which we are trying to add more resources including the, um, the videos that Kush mentioned from the presentations and to really make that Spalding Symposium website a year-round um, portal that that is you know has a shelf life beyond the period of the symposium itself fascinating um was there anything else about the conference that you hoped we would touch on today tickets are available on Eventbrite if anybody does want to uh sign up for this yes <laughs> i just need to oh. get quickly before <laughs> wow COVID's really facilitated and everybody's online and marketing skills i love it i love it um <laughs> So for those of you listening, um, by all means, check out the link in the podcast notes. And if this is up your alley, um, 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 studious spectators are welcome um, for free. So by all means, uh, join if you're so inclined. I want to thank you all for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So for those of you listening, we have been Speaking uh, with the organizers of the Spalding Symposium on Indian Religions. Um, you can find out more about that in the podcast notes. Um, and still, until next time, stay safe, uh, keep well, and uh, keep anticipating the day when we can all attend a symposium in person together. Take care. Thank you.